We are live with the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse Curated Conversation Podcast from Greenwich Village, City of New York. Tonight's book, San Francisco Year Zero, Political Upheaval, Punk Rock, and the Third Place Baseball Team. The publisher, Rutgers University Press, the author, Lincoln Mitchell. Lincoln, a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. It's always fun talking baseball and books with you. Uh, absolutely. This is a, a, a bit of a, a new one for me with, when we're bringing in punk rock. Politics, I'm not bad, but punk rock, we'll, we'll see how that we'll goes. We'll get you through. But we also were fortunate tonight because we have two terrific roundtable guests to join us as well, Jennifer Blowdryer and Kenneth Sherrill. So thank you, Jennifer and Ken, for joining us as well. And I'm just, just for those listening, I just want to do some quick bios on all three just so you have this and you'll understand why this is a great lineup. Uh, Lincoln Mitchell is an adjunct associate professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He has authored many books on the former Soviet states, democracy, and baseball, including Baseball Goes West, How the Giants and Dodgers Shaped the Major Leagues, and Will Big League Baseball Survive? He has also written extensively about San Francisco's history in Instant City, Roads and Kingdoms, Parts Unknown, and the New York Observer. Jennifer Blowdryer got her name from singing in the Blowdryer in 1978. They played in San Francisco at the Mab and the Deaf Club. She published her first book, Modern English, a photo-illustrated trendy slang dictionary with Last Gasp in 1984 and moved to New York City the same year on a fellowship to the Columbia Writing Division. She just finished a new album called She's Got the Weirdness, and her next book is slated for spring 2020 with Pedestrian Press, working title of The 86th Project. Kenneth Sherrill is Professor Emeritus at Hunter College and the City University of New York Graduate School. In 1977, he became the first openly gay elected official in New York State. He's the author of Power, Policy, and Participation, as well as Gays in the Military. His current book in progress, Identity and Consciousness in LGBT Political Behavior, is expected to be completed next year. Ken is also the author of articles, papers, and reviews in various scholarly journals. Uh, Lincoln, Jennifer, and Ken, thank you so much. And just a quick uh, thank you as well to our sponsors, Sauce Pizzeria and St. Mark's Wine and Liquor. And also a little thank you, in case you hear any snoring during this podcast, no one has fallen asleep. It's, uh, it's my dog, Sinatra, the 12-year-old French bulldog. Uh, so those noise coming from the back, that's, that's what it is. Don't, no, one, no one's sleeping. Uh, before I, uh, I want Lincoln to, to get us going, but before I ask a, a specific question, I just, for all three of our guests, we're talking about, as the book is titled, San Francisco Year Zero. So, Lincoln, Jennifer, and Ken, if you could just let us know, take us back to 1978, and just let us know where you were and what you were doing in that year. In 1978, I was 10 years old for most of the year. I turned 11 in December. I was in fifth and sixth grade at Stuart Hall, Stuart Hall for Boys, where I was maybe one of three Jews in the whole Catholic school. <laughs> and I was going to a lot of Giants games. Ken? Uh, 1978, I was, uh, I had just been elected a district leader 
dealing with being the first openly gay person in New York, uh, elected to anything. Uh, I was uh, trying to teach and be in politics at the same time, uh, not really successfully either. And um, I watched a lot of baseball on television. That was it. Let's see, in 1978, I was not watching any baseball. Um, I was 17, I was in San Francisco, East Bay, and moving around, and um, punk rock came along about, oh gosh, maybe 1977, 78, and I was just galvanized by, you know, I wasn't, I really wasn't, uh, I was a pretty angry teenager, you know, and I wasn't matriculating well at a Berkeley High School. And um, I just loved it, it just changed my life. And San Francisco had a punk rock scene. And it was different. It seems like each city had a different type of scene or each country, but, you know, that's what was going on for me. We did have a softball coach when I was in Rhode Island at North Kingston High, and he lived in his car. So I, <laughs> he lived in his car, Mr. Chanier, I think. Not in a van down by the river. I know, I love that sketch yeah. too. <laughs> I live in a van by the river. <laughs> well, yeah. it's all, all three uh, interesting uh, happenings in 1978. Yeah. I'm a, I, was at, I was a freshman at NYU in 1978. Uh, okay. So we'll get into my little touch of punk rock, but uh, much more in politics and baseball. Yeah. But since this book, San Francisco Year Zero, political upheaval, punk rock, and a third place baseball team. So Lincoln, if you could just to get us going, it, it, the book is terrific and it's extremely interesting. It, it, and I would always ask this question in the clubhouse, if you could just let us know how this book came about. This book came about for a lot of reasons. One was that a huge part of my life has always been baseball. And 1978 was the year that really concretized my uh, relationship to the game and my lifelong uh, being a fan of the San Francisco Giants. And the Giants finished in third place. But when you talk to people, you know, they had not, they did not appear in the postseason between 1971 and 1987. And the 78 season, that and 82, were the only really exciting seasons they had in there. And that 78 team excited a lot of fans and then came to be forgotten because you know Barry Bonds came along the three World Series came along so I wanted to do something not just to kind of write about that team but to place that team in a broader context because I'm convinced I was convinced and I'm more convinced that there was something about that team in San Francisco at that time that was important so that's how and then the political events of late 1978 and here we're talking about the massacre at Jonestown and then the assassinations at City Hall really shaped modern San Francisco. San Francisco looks very different if November 27th, 1978 doesn't happen. Um, and then I wanted to bring in punk rock because if I grew up in San Francisco in the 70s just being told almost daily that I'm exaggerating, but you know, that I'd miss the summer of love and, and, and how terrible that was. And, and I think that, that bringing in punk rock maybe says, let's, not, let's stop talking about the summer of love for a minute and let's talk about something else but it also has an enormous impact on San Francisco. A lot of San Francisco today, which despite what you hear about the tech money and all of that, is still culturally and politically a very progressive place, is related to the punk rock scene in the late 70s. So it, it started, the, 
it starts really with baseball as far as when you start thinking, well, what should my next book be? Yes, because there are a lot of good books about Moscone and Milk. And um, I don't want to write... There's no room for just another book about the assassinations. And, and, I mean, you can't write this book and not talk about the assassinations, but it's not a book about the assassinations. But it places it in a broader context, and baseball is part of that context. I mean, baseball is always part of the context. Absolutely. So, all right, so since we're talking about political upheaval, punk rock, and a third-place baseball team, I'm going to let you start off. You can pick whichever one of those you want to get going with, and then we'll have Ken and Jennifer uh, chime in. Pick whichever one of those three you, you want to talk about. Let's start with political upheaval. Okay. San Francisco in the 1970s, I suspect like a lot of cities, was a deeply divided city. And that, uh, those, that division, that clash came to a head in October, November 1975 in a mayor's race where George Moscone, uh, running as a almost radical left Democrat, I mean, he wouldn't have used those words, but in the context he really was, uh, gotten a runoff against a guy named John Barbagelata, who was essentially a proto-Giuliani type, you know, very uh, angry, reactionary, didn't like the changes he saw in his city, whether that was uh, gay people moving in, whether that was hippies moving in, whether that was non-white people demanding that they have a seat at the table for the governance, and that was a very nasty election. Moscone won in a narrow margin, but it didn't solve anything. And those two, that fight continued through 1978 and, and, and ultimately culminated in Dan White uh, shooting George Moscone and Harvey Milk. And that was an enormous political upheaval for, for San Francisco and changed the city. But also, I think, is a story about urban America that other cities, while not experiencing it that dramatically, there are similarities. And Ken, uh, does any of that, uh, any thoughts about that for, from, from where you stood in 1978? Yeah, a lot. Um, first, I, 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 I discovered this uh, last night, is that in a bizarre fashion, uh, uh, Lincoln is my academic grandchild. Uh, that is, uh, Bob Bailey, who is my graduate student, was on Lincoln's dissertation committee. And one of the great things about being an academic is that you always take credit for whatever your students do. Uh, and okay. yeah, you see that? I did that. Uh, so uh, this, I, 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 you know, it's like I quell that, that, that <laughs> my, my grandkid has put out such, such a good book. Uh, and uh, Bob wrote a book, a great book, uh, called Gay Politics, Urban Politics uh, that came out early 90s, I think. Mid 90s, a while ago. Uh, and he, he set the book up by, by saying that uh, people think of cities in two ways. Uh, one is as uh, an economic engine and the other is as an arena of contested identities. Uh, and that's certainly, you know, uh, 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 if you wanted to say to distinguish uh, Bloomberg's New York from Dinkins' New York, 
uh, that that's you know really where, where you were uh, and uh, by telling these three or four stories uh, you capture in, in, in the city the contested identities and the battle between Moscona and and, and uh, you know, Milk, obviously, but but at, at the Feinstein side of, of seeing the city as as an economic engine and everything else be damned because what you've got to do is create jobs and make money and so on, uh, and and what happens, one hopes, is, is that when somebody takes office, when when and recognizes the contested identities uh, and makes them, makes them take part in, in the political process and celebrate their identities, uh, bounce off one another. One changes the politics in a lasting fashion for a very long time. And, and that, that's what, I, uh, what, what Lincoln does this so brilliantly in this book. Uh, I know nothing about punk rock. Uh, 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 I, I will say, you know, I kind of disagree with you about, about uh, wonderful biographies of milk uh, because they tend to be hagiography. Uh, you, you never get very far in politics being as clean and pure. That's right. Uh, 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 and what what particularly gets wiped out in, in, in the milk stuff is sex, uh, and, and and the centrality of sex in in uh, running a political campaign. I think any of us who've ever been in a campaign knows how many people sleep with other people in the campaign. Uh, I, I can't tell you what it was like for me to campaign in gay bars in 1977, but as one example, I printed campaign literature on the back of trick slips. Trick slips were pieces of paper that you would hand to someone either that you had just had sex with but never told your name to, or that you hoped to have sex with in the future. So just small pieces of paper. And everybody would pick pick them up, and I got some of the bars to put my campaign literature on the back of Trixler. <laughs> so everybody everybody wanted to get laid, carried my name, my name, phone number, the district number. I, I, you know, but but that was essential to organizing. Particularly, the gay community in, in New York is not as geographically concentrated as it was in San Francisco. I would bet that central that sex was central to the punk rock scene as well, and uh, I, I as to baseball, you know, that's fantasies. But but uh, the the uh, the 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 kind of uh, of uh, of personal commitments that, that you forge in 
any one of those scenes uh, last, last for li a lifetime, uh, focus your identity, and in this case, build coalitions uh, and their lasting coalitions. Having worked together happily and successfully once, you're going to do it again and again, and that's part of the reason why uh, th this, these transformations last. So that's. You know. how, how long were, were Milk and Moscone uh, in office? Harvey Milk was a member of the Board of Supervisors for just under 11 months. People don't realize that. He was, he had, and, and in, no, in January of 1977, the city had just switched to district elections. They were preparing for that. If someone had said Harvey Milk will become a civil rights hero, people, he was a three-time failed politician. He was a gadfly, smart guy, um, learned how to play political hardball, and by 78 was playing it well. But had not was not doing it before. At least two of those campaigns, he didn't have a shot. And the third time, you know, uh, he ran, came up against Art Agnos, who was a pretty smart politician, who was able to beat him. Um, Moscone had been in the state senate. He got elected in '66. He became almost immediately senate majority leader. He got elected. He became mayor in January of '76 and served just under three years, and then he was killed. So he was more of a career politician. And Dan White. If you just to uh, give us a little a little summary sure. about Dan White. Uh, Dan White was uh, similarly to Ma to Milk ran in '77 after they had created the city moved from at large elections to district elections with the with the intention of this would lead to a more diverse board of supervisors, which is precisely what happened. There were two pretty conservative districts in the southern one in the southwest where a guy named Quentin Cop uh, uh, was elected, and Cop played a role in these assassinations. Um, and the other was just next to that where Dan White was. So it was a conservative, largely white district with some African-Americans in neighborhoods like Visitation Valley, so a little diverse. And, and Dan White was a failed cop and a failed fireman uh, and a failed politician. I mean, and, and I talk about in the book how Quentin Cop, who was ideologically uh, allied with White, just described him as having no idea how city government worked. And the, the story in the movie, I'm told by people who were there, where Milk persuades, leans on Moscone to not reappoint Dan White is not true. Um, people close to Moscone, very close to Moscone, told me, I'm not telling tales, it's in the book, um, Dan White, uh, George Moscone would have been an idiot to reappoint Dan White, and he was not an idiot, he was never going to appoint it. But nonetheless, Dan White, for whatever reason, decided to blame the gay guy, right? One of the reasons he blamed the gay guy was because he was gay. But another reason was because Milk had outsmarted him several times and made him look stupid, which frankly wasn't that difficult. Yeah, he wasn't known as the sharpest tool in the box. I guess for me, um, I'm not that politically savvy, but I came from Rhode Island when I was 14, and for me to be in San Francisco and Berkeley in those years, I was really living in a bubble, and I'm, I'm pretty happy I was, because really the, the gays, I mean, for me as being socialized for the first time as a teenager, it seemed to me like gay people just ran everything. You know, when I was in a band with, um, I had this bass player who would go from being a lesbian separatist to doing meth to doing est. And there were gay clubs that I couldn't get into. They'd go, oh, well, your feet might scuff up the dance floor. But, 
So I had this really, and then Berkeley was very um, African American pride, and um, they wouldn't, they weren't really interested in, uh, you know. They, I didn't get invited to the prom because the, they had it in a boat, but didn't tell any of the white people. So it was very much like I was in a bubble, and um, I'm glad I had this false sense of how things work in a way, because I wasn't, I think if I was in New York, I would have been seen some kind of like vamp nurse to a junkie. It was like I would got to be like a bratty kid and a punk rocker, and I got in some trouble, but not that much trouble. And um, there was a gay cop who had a puppet who everybody knew at the Mab in North Beach. And the guy that booked him was a very tough gay guy called Dirk Dirksen. And he was just like an anti-hero for me. And he was the one who kind of like dared to book any kind of different band or show. And he had been from live television. So... For me, um, I would have seen Harvey Milk. I, I guess he was a quite a charismatic person. I wouldn't have gotten to be around a Moscone, but it's nice, like hearing Lincoln talk about him. It sounds like he kind of got overshadowed by the Dan White's assassination because he sounds like such a important person. What did you call him? A cigar chomping, no, baseball I, I, loving, or no, is that our Agnos? No, no, I'm not a cigar chomping, but Moscone was baseball loving. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, like one of those real guys yeah. with the fantastic mind principles. And, and M- M- Moscone, sorry, yeah. I don't know. Moscone married. Moscone was an Italian American guy from the. Grew up, you know, in the Cal Hollow Marina part of town. Back when that was a real working class, middle class part of town. Now it's very gentrified. And single mom, no siblings, very close with his mother, who really, you know, put everything into his, to making him, was able to go to the elite Jesuit school on a basketball, an all-city basketball player. A Jesuit. And, and, but he, he came from that background and then joined it with kind of very, very progressive politics. So he could work in both San Francisco's. A guy like Dan White couldn't. Dan White, the newer, more progressive San Francisco, wanted nothing to do with him. And the older, more conservative San Francisco hated people like Harvey Milk because he was gay, because he had a New York accent, because he was a Jew, because of his politics. Hated him. Would not give him the time of day. But Moscone, they could work with. And your point about baseball, I have a friend in San Francisco who's quoted in the book, uh, Charles Frockia Jr., who's quoted, he, I, in, in total, honestly, portray him as kind of the ultimate San Francisco Giants fan. And... Charles's politics leaned towards the far left, right? So he was not old enough to vote, but he would have been a Moscone supporter. Um, and when Moscone's name comes up, the first thing, today in conversation in San Francisco, he still lives out there, the first thing Charles says is, don't forget, he's the guy who saved the Giants. <laughs> and for a lot of San Franciscans of a certain age, Moscone is the guy who saved the Giants. So the day that after he got sworn in, the Giants were moving to Toronto. The Toronto Papers were running the newspaper articles. We got Major League Baseball finally before the Blue Jays, and that was the first thing Moscone did as mayor was work to save the Giants. Oh, oh. oh very Sorry. interesting. The uh, now I, I enjoyed uh, Jennifer's uh, description of bubbles because sometimes I, I feel like it's good to know that bubbles always existed in a way. There's it, it, good and bad, obviously, but it's good to know that bubbles always existed because it feels now that everybody is in their bubble. And it's a disaster, basically. So yeah. uh, 
it's very interesting to the way that you spoke about it from 40 years ago. Yeah, I wouldn't have known, because you don't know when you're in the middle of something. But when I moved to New York to go to Columbia, all of a sudden, you know, I was writing in a way that was like I'd studied with Leonard Michael and Tom Gunn on the West Coast, and I was just writing about hanging out with this kind of violent tranny that we, you know, we were kind of in cahoots and a lot of those things. And I never thought to censor it or that it was a different world. And when I came to the East Coast, people said the people I was writing about were colorful characters and underground. And I found that kind of diminishing. Like, no, that's, these are my friends. These are the people that I know. And gays, it, there was segregation in New York, I guess, in 84, 85. And I think it kind of continues. And I hadn't known about. I wasn't prepared for that and I was kind of disappointed because this, these, you know, this was my people. Right. You know, you had a guy, a straight guy you went out with and then you had a friend. <laughs> a straight guy. And um, so yeah, New York was really old world. And then the Black Pride thing, I really didn't even know what it was coming from. I didn't understand racism. My mother tried to explain I took a trip to Germany and I saw the segregation and the attitudes and she said, that's imperialism. You've just been sort of protected from it, you know? So in a lot of ways, I just didn't, it was a bubble, but I'm glad I was in it because it, it's not the worst role, you know, being an outsider that's not, no natural predators, you know, lots of smart people. And the drag queens were just so on top of it. And, they were such artists, so. But you know, in, 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 in San Francisco at the time, all you had to do was take from the Mad, was, you know, take, well, I don't know how you get, but you know, you take the N Judah, go down to Geary Street, take the, go down to Market Street, take the N Judah, and you would be there. Like, you would be in places where if you were non white, you wouldn't feel safe. If you were gay, you wouldn't feel safe. San Francisco was not this progressive paradise in the late 1970s. And that's what, mm. that's what, 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 what got us to where, to where it got us, is that it still was. It was a city that still was in transition. And, you know, Moscone, a, you know, a very, Moscone's death, or the white killing of Moscone was in large part because the police unions and others wanted Dan White back on that board of supervisors so that he would vote against the consent decree, which would have forced the San Francisco Police Department to integrate. And they pushed him to get back on, and Moscone said no. But that was, so, so this bubble, the bubble was in North Beach, right? It may have been, I mean, I mean for example, Berkeley, the Castro. It wasn't in the whole city. I mean, when, in, in my Catholic school, and I don't mean that in a discriminatory, but in my Catholic school, I, I think I could safely say that, that Harvey Milk's assassination was not met with people bursting into tears. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. So it was a very contested space. You know what I remembered when I read that? Uh, I went to graduate school in North Carolina uh, because it was the only place in the country that was studying the civil rights movement in 1963. Yeah, yeah. And I was there when Kennedy was assassinated. My, my friends who had kids in the public schools reported that the public school kids broke out in cheers on learning that Kennedy had been assassinated. 
the the uh, frat houses all threw parties that night and celebrated. Uh. Uh, and, and you, you know, I mean, it's kind of identity politics gone berserk when you when you see the other side, uh, and we rarely see the other side. Yeah, I think I didn't really. I think once. Um, Somebody tried to invite me to what would have been a frat party, and my friend Alvin just wouldn't let me go. And once, when I was at at International House in uh, at Columbia, um, my only friend was this guy Honor Von Banerjee, and it was the same thing. Like these kind of yahoos inviting me to a party, and Honor Von was just, "I'll tell your fortune. I'll do anything. You're not going." So I feel like I was kind of protected for the most part from my natural enemies. But in the city at the time, <laughs> San Francisco at the time, it was, I mean, your, your story about, about the Kennedy assassination, I've similarly experienced the Milk assassination. You know, yeah, that's a I mean, and, 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 you know, and, and the, it was, if you, you know, as, as a kid, you, you were, it was, as a young kid, it was harder to, to, to pull yourself out of that segregation because, you know, the, the, the private schools were still filled with the people who were kind of dying Feinstein liberals. I mean, those are who their parents voted for. Barbara Gelato was a little too distasteful, and Moscone was a little too radical, right? Mm-hmm. But hardly milk. I mean, and, and this also goes through this complicated question of identity, right? But And, and I, I spent a lot of time on this in the book because Harvey Milk was a Jew from New York. And when you talk to people who knew him well, they keep coming back to that. That was a big part of his identity. And you hear it in his speeches, right? Barbara Milk was born in 1929, May 22nd, 1929, right? So, so he's in his, so Harvey Milk, when the camps were liberated, would have certainly been old enough to know what was going on, to be able to read those stories in the newspapers, maybe see, you know, what he called films, clippings, and know what had been going on. And that informed him, as it did many Jews, American Jews and others, of his generation. That was very much who he was. And, and I remember my mother, who is a Jew from New York, but is not gay, and his politics were, you know, like she voted for Moscone in that runoff. Um, she told us, my brother, my late brother and I, that Milk was one of us. And this is fascinating. Why? Because he speaks Yiddish. He's got the same accent as my mother. <laughs> he was a Jew from New York. The, the kids at my Catholic school, within days, came into school saying what their parents had told them, which was that Dan White shouldn't get a long jail sentence because he, this was the line. And you heard this all the time in... in in conservative San Francisco, look, he led an exemplary life, he made one mistake, a rather big mistake, you know, <laughs> and, and, and therefore he shouldn't get, and, and, and we came home, and we heard this from our classmates, and we came home and told this to our, like, tried this line out on our mother, and she said, you know, you guys are crazy, like, what are you talking about? Like, of course he should go, like, very <laughs> like, you should get the death penalty, long if she wasn't for the death penalty, but go away for a long time, like, he killed two people, and, but that was the level of of division and contestation. And and Moscone could never, it would be, speaking about hagiography, to say that Moscone solved that would be dishonest. He did. Right. It was the crisis that solved it, in the sense that we have to, we can't move forward. And that's where Diane Feinstein becomes, in my view, a very, very complicated figure in this. Yeah, she mm-hmm. used to be maligned as a conservative one, and then now, of course. <laughs> but even as mayor, right? I mean, yeah. you know, Feinstein as mayor. People didn't like her. No, I mean, I mean, it, it, so so very complicated, right? So so, so they're assassinated on assassinations are Monday, Monday after midday. By Saturday night, she's sending cops to the map and to other punk rock clubs. She hated the punk rock. I mean, we you know, hate. and, and it was mutual, right? <laughs> on the other hand, 
On the other hand, she made a very clear signal that we're not going back, right? We think of a now that a city like San Francisco, of course it has diverse leadership. It never did until George Moscone became mayor. It only had three years of diverse leadership mm -hmm. when Feinstein became, it could have been very easy for her to just, nope, it's all white men again, and she didn't. Now, she went back to the kind of pro-development, Alioto, Christopher, you know, policies of business and development and tourism, but she didn't, she didn't go back from that, that, that diversity and that it's not just going to be a city run by old white dudes anymore, ever again. And it hasn't been since. Now, what, so Diane Feinstein, what was the reason for the dislike of the punk rock scene? I have no idea. I just, I mean, because I was around really older artists who maybe they're, maybe they were more politically astute or they had, you know, more, they were more iconoclastic. And I was not, I would always have a friends who knew about politics, whereas I didn't. But she was perfect, you know, she wore this giant, like, power shoulders and this giant bow. And, you know, she, powerful women always have to sort of seem conservative visually and not make, you know, very rapid physical movements. So she was thought of as conservative. I mean, compared to this practically utopian view that... Yeah, I mean, she must have had an awfully protected life. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, in which she had simply not come into contact with, uh, or, 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 you know, was one to stay away from, uh, you know, the, these dirty, uh, uh, sick, uh, and, and, you know, all the words you're going to use. I, I was... In San Francisco in 84 for the Democratic National Committee, I was a Mondale, the convention of the Mondale, the, you know, at the Moscone Center. Uh, night before the convention started, there was a party for the gay delegates and alternates that were maybe 25 of us from around the country. I mean, it wasn't a huge, huge thing. And a guy walks up to me, and he sticks out his hand and says, Ken Sherrill. He says, Seth Charney. I said, oh my God, Seth, Seth Charney went to Brooklyn College with me, a very Brooklyn Jew, da-da-da-da. And I had, you know, hadn't heard from him since, since I graduated. He said, I'm the lobbyist for Bay Area Physicians for Human Rights. He said, I, I, remember, I remember that there's nothing I liked more than the trips for me to Albany to fight for free tuition. And I went, after I served in Vietnam, I went to medical school and I, I was practicing as a psychiatrist. But I gave up, gave up my uh, practice so I could get back into lobbying. And then he just unleashed on, on, on Feinstein. Uh, and first first thing he told me was that she was meeting meeting with uh, a, a representative of the Vatican in her home, and he picketed the house with, with a sign that said Feinstein for Judenrat. <laughs> 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 and a priest from local, uh, on the faculty of a local Catholic college came up to him and said, no, no, you, you, you mustn't do that, you know. And then he said, and in fact, you know, 
we're, we're very, very uh, helpful uh, on AIDS. And Seth said, oh yes, he said, I, I know. I, uh, I had friends who were priests who, who died of AIDS. And uh, the, the priest said to him, oh, but he got it in the course of his work. And Seth said, I didn't know he was a sex worker, too. <laughs> but then, but then I, I went to a party uh, that, that Bay Area physicians threw for all 25 gay delegates. And every one of them hated her, hated her. And they went through this litany of how she was responsible for death. How, how she was killing people because she was so damn uptight about sex that you couldn't talk to her seriously about it. Uh, Feinstein was a complicated... I mean, Feinstein, you know, she grew up in Pacific Heights, went to the Convent of the Sacred Heart, then went to Stanford. You know, she did lead a very sheltered-protected life. She, on the parole board in the late 60s, managed to push through something, making it so that uh, if you were on parole and had you know same-sex sexual re- uh, contact relationship, it was not a parole violation. So actually, was a, was at that time a, a meaningful pro-gay thing mm-hmm. that she did. She was, but she was, and then she ran for government for the first time she, citywide election '69. Uh, it was um, it was uh, at that time at large elections. You ran the whole city. She ran the first time in '69 mm-hmm. and came in first. So, so, so we, we should always recognize this is an extraordinary gifted politician, if nothing else. Yeah. But Diane Feinstein, to this day, is a prude. I mean, I don't know if that's the right word, but I mean, she's a total prude, right? So if you're coming in and you're talking about sex and safe sex and what gay sexual behavior is like and what we have to do, she would have shut down, and she did. I mean, your, your, your stories are right. On the other hand, I, I, I'm adamant that we can't talk about the challenges that any mayor of San Francisco, London, Breed, today, anyone else... Uh, faces without talking about Prop 13, which the city was still reeling from in 1984, the, the, the funding cuts that meant, oh, God. because that froze property right. taxes so you couldn't raise money. And there was a right-wing, anti-urban, anti-gay president who was going to do nothing about AIDS. And Jerry Brown, who was a good progressive governor, wasn't in office anymore. Right? Moscone worked with Jerry Brown in Sacramento and Jimmy Carter in Washington. Feinstein was stuck with George, stuck with George Duke, Reagan, Duke Majin and Ronald Reagan. Right? That was pretty rough. Now, there was a lot of controversy around this, right? Shutting down the bathhouses, that kind of thing. But also, there was not the homophobia and the gay baiting that you would have had from a John Barbagelotta, right? That you had from a Dan White. There was none of that. Feinstein didn't, never used that kind of language. Never, that was never her politics. It was never okay, and it hasn't been okay since. And that's where I, I really try to walk a line on Feinstein because, you know, um, I didn't, I never voted for mayor in San Francisco because I moved here before, you know, this is the way it worked out. But, you know, in, 80, in 79, and this is, this is the punk rock tie-in that to me is very important, she's challenged from the right when she ran by Moscone. Not by Moscone, I'm sorry, Moscone was dead, by Quentin Cobb. And who runs on the left of her? No one. There's no major progressive politician. But who picks up that mantle is Jello Biafra. Yeah. Right? Now, now explain, uh, and, explain uh, yeah, Biafra. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, Jennifer, you would chime in if you want to add anything. But, but Jello was a name I, I did not know at all before this book. Yeah, nor I. 
so so Jello was. See these New Yorkers. What are we gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> so Jello was the kind of frontman singer with the Dead Kennedys, which was the the kind of the seminal, the most well known now of the San Francisco punk rock scene. And and I just 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 process. And we talk about this in the book. I give examples. The shock value of Dead Kennedys in San Francisco or anywhere in 1978. And Jello is. I mean, he is a. He's an artist, he's a showman, he's, he's, he's a combination of all these things, a performer, a clown, but he's very, very smart. He's a lawyer's son from Colorado. And, and he's a lawyer's son from Colorado. So he came from the, not the ruling class, but he knew how the world worked, and that's a big advantage. It's kind of like a campy dissident. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, not get brought, you don't get brought under. Yeah, he knew. You know. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. And he ran for mayor in 79, on a platform that combined the absurd, right? So one of his one of his ideas was that we're going to erect for to raise money for the city. We're going to erect statues of Dan White in our parks, right? And you think this is a horrible idea. And then we're going to raise money by selling eggs, tomatoes, and things for people to throw at the statues of Dan White, right? So it was a very. But then he had other ideas. One of his ideas was um, that that. Oh, so one of his best ideas was that was that. Police and gay men in the Castro should have to switch uniforms, right? <laughs> Which was like because it was the idea that the kind of the, the the uniform that all the gay men in the Castro wore was kind of a funny, right? But then he said, police officers should be elected in their precincts, should have to run for re-election. That, that's a serious. It, it may not be the most practical, but it's a serious thing about what do you do about police brutality, right? He talked about radically limiting cars in downtown San Francisco. That's not a crazy idea, right? So Jello mixed. The, the nutty and the, and the rather serious progressive. Some of these points would look at a place and what Bill de Blasio would run on if he were you know, going to run again. Um, so, so, so he did that, and, and, he, and, and that was on Feinstein's left because there was, because Dan White had almost literally decapitated the progressive left in San Francisco in the electoral sense. Milk was likely going to run for mayor in 83 after Moscone was reelected and term limited out. Willie Brown, who was still a progressive in the late 70s, and Cal Ruth Silver just weren't ready yet for citywide mm -hmm. camp campaigns. So, so Feinstein, you know, you know, owned the center and much of the left and the right, and, and was, and therefore had pretty much free reign to do whatever she wanted as, as mayor, which, you know, she kind of did. Je Jennifer, do you, do you have any memories of the punk rock scene uh, while Biafra was running for mayor? Um, he was somebody that... You know, everybody knew. I mean, he would hang around. He was different, and I remember I had... I transcribed a couple of interviews with him, and he was sort of an anarchist, but I remember he also... He'd done this thing where he gave brownies with acid in them to a toll booth worker. <laughs> and, you know... Kind of like a prankster, but he also said the thing about doing, you know, like the heavy drug use that goes with being a musician. This he said the thing is to take a drug, oh I don't know, acid, whatever, heroin once and have a vision, and then stop doing it and act on those visions. So he was really like a doer, you know. And these days, like forty years later. There were some people in the punk rock scene that were like, you know, they just had lousy jobs and they were just, not just, but, you know, they were from a different, not from that educated 
I can't think of a way to say it without sounding horrible, but at any rate, there's resentment because whenever there's a documentary or something, it's still Biafra coming out, and he's so well-spoken, right. and he describes things that they feel, you know, well, maybe that was my story, too, or, you know, I just had a shitty job in cancer, but I also was at this punk rock scene. But no, he was, he was great. His later flaw in life, when he really got into sort of, I don't know, preaching, but these lengthy speeches, and he called it mm, spoken word, yes. is they would call him Castro. Because <laughs> he would show up and he would speak for three hours in a row. He's very talky. Uh, and, and I interviewed him for this. I, uh, I, I tried to get... I, I tried to. talker. I mean, you raise a very good point, which is that the middle class survivors of the, survivors of the punk rock movement tell the story. Right. Yeah. So, for example, we haven't mentioned her name, but Penelope Houston, right? Uh -huh. Who's great. I mean, I, I have. She was super helpful in writing this book. Penelope was a singer of the band called the Avengers, which is a, in my money, the, the fantastic, but better than Dead Kennedy. It's a fantastic band, right? And they still perform. But you, you see them in Brooklyn. They go to they see them in Brooklyn once a year, you know. And Penelope works as a library as a librarian now in San Francisco, the San Francisco Public Library. We'll be we'll be, we'll be appearing together at the Public Library in January. But but Penelope comes from middle class background, is totally articulate and great at interviews and, and, and very friendly and all of that. But there are other people who, you know, I, I interviewed Joe Dirt, right? Now, Joe Dirt has great stories to tell, right? Including great baseball stories. And he's a New York guy who moved out there to be part of the punk rock scene. And um, now uh, he lives at part of the, not literally lives, but spends part of his year outside, in the, outside of Wright Field in Oracle Park with a fishing net. <laughs> and he's the guy that gets splash hits out of the, and, and, he, and it's just like his passion. And he, he, you know, um, but people don't talk to Joe. You know, because he hasn't been to college, because he doesn't, you know, and, and, and you miss part of the story. It's, it's a methodological flaw if you only talk. It's like when, you, when I do work in, in a foreign country for my other, other part of my consulting work, if you only, if you go to, I don't know, Armenia and, and to the research project and only speak to English speakers, you're not mm -hmm. getting the real story. It's a similar, I mean, it's not quite that dramatic, but so you have to, you know, and I, I tried in this book to really get some of those people who were not the people that are always, because... Jello is charming, and he will talk your ear off, and he's great sound bites, as is East Bay Ray. You know. Oh, they don't get along. <laughs> no, it's like, like anything. Actually, yeah. the Dick Kennedys, if you're in a pub in a few parts yes. of Europe, Latin America, definitely in New York, you'll hear those, they became like kind of top 40 yeah. songs, so then there was money and pub music publishing involved and blah, blah, blah. Right. East Bay Ray yeah. is so, the, the, the rank here goes so deep. Jello and I went to the same university, right? Oh, really? Um, Jello and I went to the same, not the same time. Uh, we were part of the UCs, went to UC Santa Cruz. Oh. And, and East Bay Ray went to Berkeley. Now, Berkeley people are snobbish about Santa Cruz <laughs> because <laughs> Berkeley is more famous, although Santa Cruz is a better undergraduate school. Oh. And, um, and he made a nasty comment to me about UC Santa Cruz, which is this great <laughs> public university down the coast from San Francisco. And, and you know, okay, I, I have to say, and I don't mean to come up the wrong way, but I, I think of myself as a reasonably well-educated person, right? And, and, and still, East Bay Ray, because he went to Berkeley and I went to Santa Cruz, has to make that comment. And that tells you how deep the rank you're. Nothing right. with me, it was about Jell-O. Right. That's great. Well, there's some great stories, some great punk rock stories in the book. My, my only punk rock story, uh, yes. I'm, you know, I, as I mentioned, I was a freshman at NYU in 78, so that's, the, oh, that's basically the start of CBGB. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I remember some guys from the dorm were like, oh, let's go to CBGB. I went once. Like, this is not my thing. You know? And they, they would go all the time. Who, who knew that it was what it was going to become? You know? The only thing I enjoyed in punk rock 
I guess you could say, enjoy it in punk rock. And he's a name in your book. I, I, I could not, it brought back so many memories. Uh, this guy, David Peel. Oh, David Peel. Uh, <laughs> who, all I knew about him, a couple other guys from the dorm who didn't want to go to CBGB's, we go to Bleecker Street, and I don't remember the name of the bar. But we walk in, and there's this guy screaming. It was, I remember where it was, but it was on Bleecker between McDougal and Sullivan. Just another one of those bars at the time. And this guy is screaming at the owner, and they are just fighting with each other. And we loved it. There was no music or anything. He was, he was telling me that a player, he was upset that he, what he was playing. And we would go back all the time just to see the fights. And all they would do is David Peel and the owner would just fight. <laughs> and that was that, that's my punk rock experience. Uh, did, did, did you have any, uh, did, uh, did you overlap with him at all or no? Not at all, but I, uh, in New York, you know, like I do sometimes um, these punk gigs in Tompkins Square Park, or I would kind of either be on a bill with this band he had, and people, um, I'd see him around a lot, and people, a friend of mine, Jeff Wilson, is a singer-songwriter, he, he kept getting people to support him, like as backup, or that admired him. And my friend um, Josh said, you know, it's really, he was able to write a good, simple song. And that's a lot harder than people think yeah. it is. Because he had some song, so kind of like a cult hero. Always a pain in the ass, I guess. But he had that song, do you want to smoke some marijuana? Do you want to? Sure I do. And, you know, Joff just felt like, well, you couldn't really write that if you tried. <laughs> <laughs> A fascinating guy, David Peel. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if he's generally thought of as punk rock, but I, I kind of wanted to raise, I wanted to raise that question, like like where does punk yeah. begin? You know, and David Peel is one of those transitional figures. Oh, right. Oh, there are lots of pop punkademics. I'm not. I'm a political scientist. <laughs> <laughs> well, since we we touched on politics and punk rock, so now let's get to baseball, which is usually all we talk about. Uh, mm -hmm. And we, I know we have. Obviously, Lincoln, the San Francisco Giants fan, and which is what the 78 team is a, is a huge part of the book. Ken, unfortunately, like me, a Mets fan. Mm -hmm. uh, I abstain. And you're <laughs> doing better than both, uh, all of us here, actually. Uh, so just talk a little bit. I have some thoughts about, uh, from a, I guess, a psychological standpoint, but I don't want to say them yet. But the 78 team, obviously, is extremely meaningful to you. Uh, it was enough to get you to spur you on to, to start another book project. Just talk a little bit about that team as it relates to the from, book. From 74 to, 73 to 77, the Giants were terrible and almost leaving town. And the Giant baseball in San Francisco was this, the Giants, 78 was their 20th year there. It was this kind of obscure thing happening in the southeastern corner of the city. And it was, the team was bad and the ballpark was worse. And it just wasn't, there was no excitement there, no magic there. The beginning of 1978, the talk is all about the Giants leaving again. Uh, a, a document had come to light that in 76, when Mayor Moscone had cut the deal to keep them there, he agreed that if they don't average a million people fans a year, if, so, if Lurie tries to take them out or sell them, to, he won't stop them. They had only drawn 1.3 total in the previous two years, so it was pretty much a done deal that they weren't going to make that deal. Then, 
all of spring training, are they going to split their games and play some in Oakland? Are they going to move to Denver? What's going to happen? And then March 17th, the headline of the Chronicle, Giants get Vita. There's only one Vita in baseball at the time. <laughs> A's closer to Denver. And that, changed, that was the beginning. Then, you know, I mean, the team won 89 games and finished in third place. But if you win 89 games and finish in third place, there's a lot of ways you can do it. You can be a pretty decent team all year long. You can come on strong at the end after the Dodgers or the Reds have run away with it. Or you can be in first place for a long time and then collapse at the end. And that's kind of what the Giants did. So they had three months in first place. And it just... And it was the first good Willie, post-Willie Mays team also. So it was the... The Giants had never... Had, the first, you know, from 58, the first year to midway through 72, they'd had Willie Mays. And from midway through 72, through the end of 77, they'd been bad, right? So there was this no sense of how can this team be good without Mays? And this was the first time. And the players on the team were no longer playing in the shadow of Willie Mays. And it was a fun team and a young team. And it was the first real Dodger-Giants race in a long time. Remember, it's, that's the big rivalry out there. So it really excited the fans. And... Willie McCovey was there. So, so for the younger fans who had missed Mays, we got to see McCovey. And, you know, they ended up finishing in third place, but they drew that $1.7 million, which means that, that, that if they tried to leave, the city could stop them. And which no one expected to do. 1.7 plus 1.3 right. equals 3. And, and one of the things I say in the book, which is, of course, impossible to prove, is that you know, the other thing we haven't talked about just cause it's, is, is Jonestown. Right. But in November of 1978... Within two weeks, there's Jonestown and then the assassinations. And when you talk to people who were there, especially people who were like conscious and adults when they were there, like people didn't, people left. People just left town. This city was collapsing. The economy was bad. The crime rate was high. All of this was going on. And it fell to Dianne Feinstein, a twice-failed mayoral candidate, although a good politician, twice run for mayor and lost, to try to bring the city together. And the dog that didn't bark in December of 1978 was that the Giants didn't leave. And again, it's impossible to prove, but they didn't leave because they had a good year on the field and in the box office. And if they had had a bad, they had a bad year instead, and they do leave, I don't know what this looks like today, but it doesn't look like this. Yeah, very interesting. How old were you in 78? I was 10. You were 10. During the baseball season. And what do you remember, Ken, from that time, that, that time in baseball? I mean, you... I also remember the Yankee Red Sox race, but we're not talking about that. That, right. that, was, that was, That's yeah. a different book. Right, right. <laughs> Do you have the, the mem baseball memories come back to you from, from 78, the late 70s? I, I remember the turmoil in the Yankees. Uh, I, I, I remember Steinbrenner, uh, the reason I stopped being a Yankee fan. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I guess Reggie Jackson was there. But I, I, I don't. I really don't have. Uh, I, I, what what happened to me that year was, was that my life was totally consumed with politics. Right. Uh, I, 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 you, know, you, 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 when you were talking about uh, the anger uh, that 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 Dan White. Felt toward uh, toward milk because milk was so successful in the in in the uh, city council. Is that you know, my experience in, in, in 77, 78 was that 
being the only one there and being the first one there, you had to work so hard to prove to everybody else that you weren't crazy and that you, you had, you know, fortunately, uh, a number of them uh, I, I'd worked with in earlier campaigns and, and so on. Uh, uh, and very fortunately, my first book had just come out. And I made sure that everybody got a copy. I, I was so proud of it, I just gave give it. So they learned I was smart, uh, but I had to prove that I was hardworking and that I was a team player uh, in order to have any influence and, and, and not be shunned, and, and I mean really shunned. Uh, uh, I ran an issues conference. Uh, we were writing a, 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 a plot for the first time ever. The Democratic uh, Manhattan Democratic Party was going to have a platform, and I wanted to make sure that there was non-discrimination you know, on sexual orientation in the platform, and coming down to the end of the the, the, the day, it was a day-long meeting. And we weren't getting it, and I was getting angrier and angrier. Dave Dinkins walked up to me, put his arm around my shoulder, and said, Listen, good buddy, you've just got to understand that there are more important issues. And it took many years for Dave and me to become friends again. Uh, but, you know, Milk, in a way I was doing what, what Milk was doing, uh, uh, you know, in a much less visible position, but still, you know, it, and you, baseball didn't totally fall out. I have one, one baseball memory, yes, one important baseball memory. Uh, the night the organizing night of the county committee was in 1977 was the World Series. And that was the night that we reformed the entire selection of the judiciary, moving to merit selection of judges, getting away from the requirement that a district leader had to approve of any candidate or judge from your district. So it was a very, very tense meeting. Councilman, Fred Samuels, Councilman from Harlem, was chairing the meeting. And every time he would get up, he would announce that Reggie Jackson had hit a home run. And he hit three home runs that night. And I think that if he hadn't, we would have come to blows during the meeting. <laughs> That's my one baseball memory. Of all the guys to be a peacemaker, Reggie Jackson would yeah. be the last. Yeah, wow. No, no, no. Here's the, here's the, the, the straw that stirred the drink. In yeah, this. that's for sure. <laughs> wow. It's, well, see, there's always a baseball memory. Somehow. It ties in with everything. Uh, well, it's really, I mean, the, 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 the book is terrific. Uh, it's been a, a really interesting conversation. I want to leave the last word to some words of Lincoln's from the book. 
But I just want to thank Lincoln Mitchell, Jennifer Blowdryer, and Ken Sherrill. Thank you very much. And the, the, the words I just want to leave with uh, from San Francisco Year Zero, these are Lincoln's words, to fully understand the trajectory that got San Francisco to where it is now in the first decades of this century, it is essential to understand one specific year. By the last weeks of 1978, many wondered how the city would survive, but the events of that year, including assassinations, mass murder, the ascendancy of San Francisco punk rock, and a revived baseball team, ultimately helped lay the foundation for the San Francisco of today. And that is San Francisco Year Zero, political upheaval, punk rock, and a third place baseball team by Lincoln Mitchell. Thank you very much. Thank you.